All right, I would invite you this morning to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, we will spend today in Romans chapter 5, and then also next Sunday, and uh, I somewhat promise we'll move on to chapter 6 after that. That's the plan anyways. We'll see how it goes. Uh, we're having so much fun in Romans chapter 5, but I want to read again Romans chapter 5, verses 12. I think I want to read down through verse 17 this morning, uh, but we won't be focusing on all of these. But I do want to uh, read this complete paragraph for you. And so God's inspired and errant and sufficient word reads, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all mankind because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not counted against anyone when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the violation committed by Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. But the gracious gift is not like the offense. For if by the offense of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of uh, the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand, the judgment arose from one offense, resulting in condemnation, and on the other hand, the gracious gift arose from many offenses, resulting in justification. For if by the offense of the one, death reigned through the one, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, I thank you for the reading of your word. And now, Lord, I just ask that your spirit would illuminate this text for us. Lord, even reading it can be challenging when we look at the complexity of it. And so we, Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would not get lost, and that I would not get lost in the weeds, and that our minds wouldn't be lost there. But, Lord, that the complexity would become simplified because really once we understand that it is a very simplistic text. And so, Lord, I just pray uh, that your spirit would have its way among us here this morning. I pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Sometimes some of Paul's writings can be pretty dense and you got to sort through it all and then you get down to it. And it's like, well, Paul, why didn't you just say it like that? <laughs> right. Um, but that's kind of how the text here is this morning. And so I titled this One Great Correction. Uh, and if you were here last Sunday, you remember that last Sunday it was about one bad decision, the bad decision of Adam and Eve. And now this Sunday, we're going to start the one great correction, uh, of course, uh, in initiated by God through Jesus. So one great correction. It has been said that we are the choices we have made. And while this may be true, we are not ultimately defined by the choices we have made. We are defined by how we finish, how we respond, how we adjust, and ultimately how we live beyond the choices that we have made. In Job chapter 1, when Job lost everything, Job's response was what? Yahweh gives and Yahweh takes away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. When I was a youngster, my older brother, who was quite a bit older than I was, he had this coffee cup. And on the coffee cup, it said this. 
The Lord gives and the government takes away. I thought you might enjoy that. Um, True cup, true story. And uh, even as a young lad, uh, as you can imagine, because you know me by now, I had a difficult time understanding what that said, and I probably overthought it like I overthink most things. And it was like, well, I'm not sure I understand the point of that cup and that saying. What does it mean that the Lord gives and the government takes away? Who says the Lord gives? Who says it's the government taking, taking it away? And evidently, my brother thought that the government was bad for taking it away. And so I was like, well, who makes these decisions? How do we know what is good? How do we know what is bad? I mean, isn't it somewhat subjective in the culture or in the climate or in the, in, in, in the community where we live? Who gets to define what is good, what is bad, what government is good, what government is bad? When do we decide what comes from God and what doesn't come from God? And so, yeah, I mean, as a three-year-old, these are some of the thoughts I had. No, I wasn't three, but... Um, <laughs> But the, it, it, I think it still carries over for us today, doesn't it? I think it does just a little bit as we think about how do we know? Job, too, wrestled with this dilemma. And when Job's wife gave him this piece of encouragement, curse God and die, Job's response was, shall we only accept good from God but not accept adversity? Should we only accept good? Or I may clean up Job's language and say, I think that I have a tendency to only accept and chalk up the good to God and then the adversity or the challenges in my life, I chalk those up either to me making a bad decision or because of the circumstances in my life, right? Or how others play into that, right? But I think Job is on to something when he asks that question. Should we only accept the good from God, but not accept the adversity. What is adversity? When our choice is to sin, and our sin brings adversity, we turn to God, right? I mean, when I choose because of my bad decisions, as we've seen last week, and then I choose to turn to God, and God, why did you allow this to happen? Or I say, if you're really there, if there really is a God, these things would not happen in my life, right? So I either in those challenging times, I turn to God for help or I turn to God to curse God and to say, God, you can't be real. These things wouldn't happen if you are a good God. That is where sin comes in. How do we define sin? How do we understand sin? And that was one of the questions that I wrestled with actually two weeks ago. And then I postponed it to this week. And so maybe I'll postpone it to next week. <laughs> but where does sin come from? If everything comes from God and there was nothing but God before there was anything, how do we even get our mind around that? And if everything that is created was created by God, where does sin come from? Where does evil come from? Those are the questions of the ages. The, the philosophers have wrestled with those, and the Stoics have wrestled through those things for, for millennia, right? It's always been the question before. And so just in its most simplistic form, as we think about sin, and if you were going to go to your Greek dictionary, your lexicon, or 
uh, of terms, what you're going to find is a sin is often used in the analogy of missing the mark, of an archer's arrow missing the target. And sometimes we look at that in some, some, in some culture or, or some thoughts, maybe, so that way, would say that just missing, that's not so bad. You just kind of missed the mark a little bit. But that's not necessarily the correct way to think about it. I guess it depends upon what the target was and what you hit instead of the target intended, right? So sin, in essence, is first and foremost, is missing the mark. Sin is disobedience to knowing what is right. Sin is disobedience to knowing what you know is the right thing to do, and yet you fail to do it. That is sin. Sin comes from within. Sin comes from the heart. Sin comes from the mind. And so when you think about where does sin come from, it comes from the heart, it comes from the mind. Where does evil come? Evil comes from sin. Well, where does sin come? It comes from you. It comes from me. It's not anything that was created, but God in the beginning created man and woman, created Adam and Eve with the free will to choose. And before him, he set a choice. And in their mind and in their heart, they made a decision. And that decision is now what we call sin. God didn't create sin, but because he gave us the freedom to choose as people, we choose to sin. Sin is the result of God giving us the freedom to choose. That's the short answer of it. So sin comes from focusing on what we desire, right? Sin comes from focusing on what we desire even though we know it's wrong, right? Even though we know it's not the right thing to do. Listen, if we didn't, if, it, if, if sin wasn't something that fed our desire, would we sin? Of course not. So sin comes from focusing on what we know we cannot have, and yet we still focus on Adam and Eve. They're the only two people who began life with having no sin. Think about that. <clears throat> See, Adam and Eve are the only two people who began life with no sin. And we sometimes think in, and hear them or thought of, or maybe you haven't even thought about this, um, but we think about, well, Adam and Eve were perfect. Well, they weren't perfect. They were neutral, right? And so what I mean by that is this, right? And so there was nothing imputed to them, and nothing was imputed from them. So, so nothing was credited to them and from them. So their bank account was zero. There had been no deposits or no withdrawals. They were neutral. Adam and Eve, they weren't perfect. They were given this ability to make a decision. They were neutral. There was no sin at that time. And they chose, they chose the only thing that God said, do not do. They chose that. And from that point forward, no longer is humanity, no more, no more homo sapiens neutral, right? Adam and Eve saw the fruit. They knew it was forbidden. They, they understood, but they focused on what they could not have. And this desire, this focus led them to make a choice, led them to willfully that apple. Why do we call it an apple? Pick the fruit. 
off the tree and eat that. The result of the relationship between focus and desire is sin, which ends in death. The focus on the fruit was good. Was there anything wrong with them focusing on the fruit? No, they probably should have focused on the fruit. But they had the wrong desire, led to temptation, and ultimately agreed to sin, ultimately agreed to disobey God. See, God put the tree in the garden, and there it was. They focused upon it, knowing that they can't have it. So that's good. Okay, God does not want me to take this fruit. That's a good thing. But as they focused on that, they could have decided that I'm going to focus on all the other nine fruits or however many they were in the garden, right? And I'll focus on those, but that's not what they have. But all they could focus upon is what they could not have. And that desire led them to ultimately disobeying God. I heard this, I heard a story said like this one time. And this was a, a long time ago uh, during, maybe it was a Flintstone cartoon or something. I'm not sure. Uh, Might have been. Um, but there was this cathedral that was being built. And they were hauling these huge boulders and these rocks to build this cathedral. And it was muddy and swamp. You know, it was, it, was, it was primitive time. And so this one servant, this traveler, comes along and sees this servant wrestling with this boulder, trying to wrestle this boulder through the mud to get it to the cathedral. And the traveler says, what are you doing? He's sweating and cursing and everything else. He says, what are you doing? I'm trying to get this boulder through this mud. He comes along another servant under the exact same conditions. But he wasn't swearing and cursing and everything else. He was sweating joyfully, and he was happy. The traveler asks him, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a cathedral. Do you see the difference? Finding themselves in the exact same position, but what are they focusing on? What is their focus? Is their focus on the here and the now and dealing with this sloppy, nasty mud? Or do they have the objective? Do they have the long-range plan in mind? Do they have the goal in mind? I am building a cathedral. That's, I think, a great analogy as we think about Adam and Eve, our first father and mother. Adam and Eve focused on missing out. See, people don't accidentally sin. There's always comes a moment of truth when you must look sin, when you must look truth in the eye and answer the question, will I eat? this fruit or will I do what I know is right? I am always fascinated when I hear somebody say, oh, I accidentally sinned. I accidentally did fill in the blank. Nope. Nope. I'm a professional sinner. <laughs> there always comes the moment of truth when I make the decision to reach up and pick that fruit. Adam and Eve beautiful that piece of fruit looks. I'll bet it tastes heavenly. And they went with it. So it's a simple mathematical equation, right? It's focus plus desire equals something. Focus plus desire equals obedience equals obeying God, pleasing God. Focus plus desire equals something. Focus plus desire is a neutral thing. It's neutral. It's what do we do with the focus and what do we do with the desire? 
focus plus desire equals obedience, obeying God, or focus plus desire equals pleasing myself, doing what I want to do. It's what I'm, how am I going to focus? What's my desire going to be? The end result is that. So it's that simple, right? Focus plus desire equals something. And that's what we want to kind of look at here a little bit this morning as we think about sin, as we think about the one great or one bad decision, and now here today, this morning, the one great correction. So sin comes from within. It grows from within. Sin comes from our nature, inherited by all people because of Adam. Now, this idea runs directly against the popular belief in our world today, and probably that was always among us, right, that says sin does not live in man or woman, nor does it come out of a person, but, it, but it, sin attaches itself to a person from some outside force, right, from outside environment. And so by nature, this idea teaches that man is good. It starts with the premise that, men, that, that people are good and that our heart is uncorrupted. This evil lies in our circumstances, right? This evil lies in the environment. This evil lies in society in which men and men and women were raised and in the in the, in the context that I was raised, right? I mean, does that sound any that is prevalent today, right? That I am the product of the circumstance of society, of the environment, of past generations, whatever it may be. I am the circumstances of evils that were done in the past. Yes, maybe so. Maybe so. But we are preparing the next generation to be able to say the same thing about us that we are saying about them. Evil and sin were not a creation of God. Evil and sin come about because God has given men and women the freedom to choose, and our first forefathers chose on our behalf. Just in case you thought I got off rail. Our first forefathers chose on our behalf. Therefore, we are guilty if we sinned or if we did not. See, Pelagius, um, he, he taught this. He taught that sin was not passed along because he was defuting something. We'll get to that. Refuting something. We'll get to that. So, so Pelagius taught that, that we we're born neutral like Adam and Eve and that the doctrine of original sin is what he was speaking against. And he did not agree with the doctrine of original sin. He said, no, everybody is born neutral like Adam and Eve, and there comes a point in time where we too make a choice, and we too choose to sin. Well, to follow that to its, <laughs> to its logical conclusion, then somebody could possibly live in that condition, and unlike Adam and Eve, go all the way through life and not sin, and thereby can reach the state of perfection, of glorification, out of nothing that God or anyone else has done on their behalf, but of something that they have done because they are the smartest and they are the brightest and they had the ability to say no to the fruit. Well, of course, Romans chapter 5 strongly disagrees with that opinion, and so does many other biblical texts. David, for instance, he disagreed in his, he disagreed in his confession in Psalm 51 after, after what everyone would call his great sin, right? And he says this, he says that in sin, my mother conceived me. Now, David is not referring to the act of the, his mother that led about to this conception, but David is saying that out of this sin nature that his mother had and that his father had and that everybody else has, we are conceived in sin. We are conceived out of that 
sin nature given to us by Adam and by Eve. And so when we sin, we sin first and foremost, we sin first and foremost to our Creator. David goes on and says in that same Psalm 51, and he says, he says, against you, you only have I sinned, speaking to God. The prodigal son, as he comes home to his father, first and foremost, he says, I have sinned against father. No, I have sinned against God. First and foremost, when we sin, it is not against another person. It is first and foremost against our creator. False teaching often stems from a reaction to something. That's what Pelagius, that's how it came up with Pelagianism. It was a reaction to something else. And the problem that Pelagius had was this idea that that the Christian can have eternal security. And since the Christian can have eternal security, therefore the Christian can do whatever they want. Well, that's not true. But yet it is true that the Christian can have eternal security and does have eternal security. But that doesn't give anybody the right to live however you want. And so Pelagius was speaking against that. And the way that he did that was by teaching a false doctrine. We can't do that. We have to acknowledge that sometimes what the Bible teaches us, people do use wrongly and incorrectly. So we we are not trapped in these bodies as some teach. And what we do against our body doesn't matter. It only matters to the physical because we're spiritual, right? And see, these are all ways that people justify sin. Well, I'm not sinning. I can sin against my body. I can do whatever I want with my body because my body isn't spiritual. My body, my spirit is going to be redeemed. And so therefore, it doesn't matter what I do to my body. And therefore, I can justify sinning, doing whatever I want. Because, preacher, you just got done saying that we're born in sin. We're born out of sin. There's nothing we can do about it. Because Adam and Eve, though I wasn't there to weigh in on my opinion, and you know I got an opinion about everything, so I'd have given them my opinion. Well, yeah, I was. In essence, I was there. I was there. How many times do we hear somebody say, or they wrestle with that thought and that idea, that how can it be that Adam and Eve, thousands of years ago, chose to sin, therefore sin has been handed down to all people? We don't want to accept that. But that's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5. We want to accept the reverse, the converse of that, or the opposite of that, or the correction of that. That Jesus, that there was a man who from the beginning did not choose to sin. There was a man who from the beginning, who was born from a mother just like you and I. And he grew up and he raised and he was obedient and he followed every single law. And that is the one. This Jesus has come so that we can have life. This Jesus has died and given his life on our behalf. But I wasn't there. Were you there? Did Jesus, were you there when Jesus died on the cross? No. But you want to accept the resurrection. You want to accept his blood sacrifice on your behalf. We want to accept that. But we don't want to accept what caused Jesus to be nailed upon that cross. And that was the sin of our father, our first father and our mother, Adam and Eve. See, we want to accept the one. We want to define what is good, right? And we want to say, no, this is good, but this is bad. Well, why do we say that? How do we say that? What gives us the right or the ability or the knowledge to be able to say such a thing? Oh, that's a lot. I haven't got started yet this morning. Ah, but that just gets me. That is, as we think about how we justify the things that we do, people, I'm not speaking to you, I'm speaking to me. The sin that I commit and do comes from within, 
the whole idea of theodicy, right? The whole idea of this evil in the world. And how do we wrestle with this idea? How can God be good and yet allow bad things to happen to good people? Well, first and foremost, there's no good people. See, sin comes within you and within me. God did not create sin or evil, but he gave us the ability to choose on our own behalf. And we have and always will choose because of Adam and Eve. We will choose to eat the fruit. That's the bad news, but there is really actually good news. So I do want to turn to our text here. Wow. I want to turn to our text uh, rather quickly here. Maybe not. Um, hmm. I didn't plan on going all there this morning. Um, I want to look at the evidence for sin. Uh, in verses 13 and 14. You see, in, in, in verses, you know, last week I pretty much camped out on verse 12. But in, in verses 13 and 14, Paul says, For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not counted against anyone when there is no law. Do you see what Paul is saying? Paul is arguing exactly what I was just arguing. He, he is saying before there was ever the law was given, Moses was given the law, right? But before Moses, people were sinning. Why were they sinning? Because they died. People have been dying since Adam and Eve. Why? Death is the result of sin. And yet, how can you die if the law wasn't given? How can you be held accountable for following a law that you were never given. That's what Paul is saying right here. Verse 14, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the violation. Adam committed the violation, one offense. We have committed many offenses. Adam was, Adam was, was, was cursed, or the ground was cursed. Sin has entered in the world because of that one offense. And yet, because of my offenses over and over and over again, this one man, this, 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 this fulfillment of Adam, if you will, over and over and over again, forgives me for my many offenses. And so when we think about sin, we think about how can these things fair, be fair? You're right. How can a just and holy God continue to to, to, to forgive a screw-up like me, right? I mean, think about the sin. Think about how we think about sin and how we think about life and the judgments that we give on other people. How can a just and holy God over and over and over again forgive me? Get your mind wrapped around that, not around where does evil come from? Where does this good grace come from? This is what we need to think about. See evidence of evil or if there's sin, you see it in verses 13 and 14. And that was the one bad decision what Adam and Eve had made. And so the great correction comes in verses, which is really a parenthesis. Paul has given commentary to what he had just said. In verses 14 or verses 15 and 16 and 17, he gives those commentaries, but I'm not going to get into that. I'm going to use some good judgment this morning. I want to move on. I'm going to go right to the end. I just don't have time for the for the rest. <clears throat> we hear we hear this thing right about a besetting sin. What is the besetting sin? In Hebrews chapter. We see it there. 
But I want to go to Second Timothy. I want to go to Second Timothy just really quickly. You can turn there if you like. Second Timothy chapter two. And just very briefly, in Second Timothy chapter two, this was the last letter Paul wrote, and just within matter of days, uh, he was going to have his head severed from his body, and and he's writing this knowing that this is the last opportunity he has anything to say to his protege Timothy. And he says, this is a trustworthy statement. If we die with Christ, we will also live with Christ. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, what? He remains faithful. Why? For he cannot deny himself. Listen, we are not faithful. Listen, we need to endure, and yet we must also know and understand that God cannot deny himself. And even though our unfaithfulness, and though we are, it does not lead to the unfaithfulness of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. It's therefore, since we, we just gave this great faith chapter, right, in, in, in Hebrews there. And then Paul, or then the writer of Hebrews, whoever that may be, some think it was Paul, but I'm not sure, he gets into this. Therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, listen, let us rid ourselves of every obstacle and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus as the author or the originator and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against him, so that what? So that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Listen, as we think about the one bad decision of last week and then the, the great correction I just kind of skipped over here this morning. But I want to get right here to this end as you wrestle with your own self and wrestle with your own uh, life and your own things that can trip you up or cause you to ask questions of God and of yourself. Paul says here, sorry, the author of Hebrews or he says here, we are to rid ourselves. We are to lay aside. We are to take off. We are to stop doing what one is doing. That's exactly what the writer here is saying. That we are supposed to take those obstacles, those encumbrances, your translation may say. And we're supposed to take those things that hinder someone from doing what is right, those weights. And we're supposed to unburden those things, those things that entangle us. That's the besetting thing. Skillfully encircling us in on all sides, it would say, if we were to look that up the sense of the root of that meaning. So skillfully it incorporates us. I remember back when I was running track. I remember when I showed up, running track, which as a good Amish boy, I probably wasn't allowed to do, but um, nonetheless I did. And, and, and there I am running track, and the first thing my coach tells me is like, James, you are not running against your competitors. And I was like, yes, I am. I was a competitive, yes, I am. Nope, you're running against the clock. I was like, well, that's stupid. Um, that's not smart. That, that, yes, I am. I'm not running against it. No, you're running against the clock. And I thought, well, I can't beat the clock. I can't beat, but I could beat that runner. Well, no, I couldn't beat that runner. That runner was also running against the clock, and his, his time was faster than mine. But we're not running. In endurance sports, you will often hear, and you, know, you guys know I love endurance sports, but they'll say, hike your own hike, ride your own ride, run your own race. Now, what they're trying to say is, like, listen, when it comes to endurance, when it comes to um, comes to endurance, yes. 
You're not competing against anyone else but yourself. The endurance sport is first and foremost not against any other competitor, even if there are any other competitors, but it is against yourself, and that's the same thing that the author of Hebrews here is saying with sin. We're not battling the sin per se as much as we are battling what is within each and every one of us. And that's what the author is saying. Those things that we know trip us up. We fight them and we battle against them. And because we can't defeat them, we don't say, well, God must have gave it this, this to me or God must be okay with this or he would take it from me. That's not how it's done, is it? We know that it is not. See, that's what exactly what God or what uh, yeah, God told here to Cain. Cain had issues because he was battling against not himself, but against his brother. Because his brother had a better sacrifice than him. And God told Cain, he said, Cain, sin. Sin is lurking at the door. And God didn't say, I'm going to take it from you. No. He said, sin is lurking at the door. And its desire is for you. That human will that we have within us, its desire is for us. But you, you must master it. You must master it. Listen, that is our life. Focus plus desire equals something. Focus plus desire equals something. Adam and Eve took a bite out of the apple. Last week we had a look at Amar and Tamar, the story about Amon and Tamar. Amar's focus and desires were certainly wrong. And when the end of that mathematical equation had been fulfilled, what happened? The desire, the focus turned to what? Fulfillment? No, hate. Hate. See, it's a lie. Our desires within us, the things that you want, the things that you say, no, God has given, God is good, God has created me. These are good things. No, they're not. It's a lie. It's a lie. You know it and I know it. We must battle against it. I'll say that, but I'll also say this. Because you know I can't stop there. Though, as we fail to fulfill what we know the right thing to do is, as believers, if you are here this morning and you have indeed surrendered your heart and life to Jesus Christ, you must know that because you trip up and you eat that fruit and you're frustrated about that and you can't understand what's wrong with you, don't ever question your salvation. Don't question that God is going to throw you out because you tripped up one more time but don't also rest in thinking that i can do what i want if that's your attitude this morning and you think you can do whatever you want because you are saved that is a sure sign that you are not saved and you must confess and surrender your heart and life to christ but if you are here this morning battling something i don't know what but a bad decision after a bad decision you must know that there has been one great correction what we couldn't do for ourselves jesus christ has done on our behalf and in that we must always end. Focus plus desire equals something. And I offer to you that your focus and desire must be for him, must be for Christ, and Christ alone. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for what you have done on our behalf. Father, I don't know how I ended up where I ended up, but I pray, Lord, that you would guard our hearts and our minds. Father, things that I have said this morning that we're out of line. Lord, I pray that you would just take those things from our mind. And Father, you know my heart. 
Father, we battle life. We battle ourselves, we battle our minds, we battle our desires. Father, it's only you who can satisfy. I pray, Lord, that if there's such a person here this morning that's just wrestling and wondering, do you even exist? Are they even saved? Father, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to that person right now. I pray, Lord, that that person can leave knowing that, yes, sin is lurking at the door. Yes, they must master it. But one bad decision does not define them. One bad decision Lord, does not shape their future. Lord, it is the great correction that you have done. So, Father, I do pray that you would make us sincere confessors. And I do pray, Lord, and thank you for what you have done for what we could not possibly do for ourselves. I pray these things in the name of Jesus.